Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Happy to be back. It's nice to be with you. Um, Listeners, we do not have Alex Lawson with us at the top of the show. Haley and I are going to go through some news. We're treating him as a de facto guest this week. He is actually joining me a bit later in the show to talk through all of the things going on in the world of golf And that ties so heavily into antitrust litigation we've been following. So really interesting to have him put on his sports editor at large hat and school me in things I know nothing about as usual, (laughs) golf. (laughs) Truly a bombshell week for for golf, though. When I I saw those news alerts rolling in the other day, I just knew. I, I thought, you know, we could turn a whole extra special little series out of this. There's so much to talk about. Absolutely. It was a bombshell when PGA and Live Golf suddenly decided their giant feud was over and they were just going to team up. So uh, yeah, Alex does a great job bringing it down. So we'll hear from him later. But before we turn to that, you and I have news to tackle, Haley. So what do you have for me first? Well, speaking of bombshells, this week has been a bit of a roller coaster over at Barber Ronin. That's the firm that was formed by a huge group of former Lewis Brisbois attorneys just about a month ago. The two named partners, that's John Barber and Jeffrey Ronan, they have resigned. They resigned Monday after emails surfaced showing them using racist, homophobic, sexist, and otherwise just really offensive and derogatory language while they were at Lewis Brisbois. So now the remaining lawyers at Barbara Ronin have opened their own new firm, and that is called Doherty Lorden. So to recap, within the span of a month, Barbara and Ronin left Lewis Brisbois, convinced more than 100 lawyers to follow them, opened a new firm, got canceled, <laughs> resigned. And now those uh, more than 100 former Lewis Brisbois lawyers have formed another new firm. Boy, I mean, that's head spinning, right? It's like, uh, this is akin to milkshake ducking somehow. I'm not quite sure, but <laughs> it's got sort of the legal industry version of that, I think. Yes. It's a little hard. I mean, you, you broke it down very succinctly, but it's a little hard for me to even wrap my head around how quickly this all turned. So maybe we could start with a little history lesson. Like, how'd we get here? At Lewis Brisbois. Barber was the National Labor and Employment Chair, and Ronin was National Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Practice. Both are based in California and were with Lewis Brisbois for more than 20 years. Okay, I need to stop here just to say the thing I always think when something like this comes up. The labor and employment people should really know better than doing something that is potentially discriminatory in emails, but we'll get there. Keep going. You would, yeah. The irony is always something to behold. It's um, heavy, yep. Yeah. So in early May, the duo announced the creation of their own firm, and they said about 125 Lewis Brisbois lawyers, including a handful of partners, would be leaving that firm to join Barbara Ronan. Now, Barbara and Ronan said the goal was to develop a full suite of offerings. They wanted to be able to handle transactional commercial litigation, employment, and intellectual property matters. And they said there would be three offices, one in LA, one in Newport Beach, and one in San Francisco. At the time, Barbara said, you know, the reason they're doing this is Louis Brisbois is a 
massive firm, and there's always a degree of compromise at a big firm like that. So here's a quote from him. Jeff and I, for this last chapter of our career, we just wanted to do it on our own. Do it our way to see what we can do. Well, turns out what they can do is have a firm for a month, but they didn't (laughs) know that at the time. Um, Yes. So I'm making light of this. It's a pretty serious story, though, with, with some crazy allegations. So what exactly happened with these emails? What are some of the particulars? Yeah, after they left Lewis Brisbois, someone actually lodged an anonymous complaint with the firm regarding their behavior. And so Lewis Brisbois' management committee started an investigation, and that's when they discovered these emails. Here's a statement from the management committee. The committee immediately began an investigation and were shocked to find dozens of emails between John Barber and Jeff Ronan with unacceptable, prejudiced language aimed at our colleagues, clients, attorneys from other firms, and even judges. Okay, so I don't want to make you say the terrible stuff that it sounds like is in these emails, but can we get maybe a little bit more information about what it was? As far as the specific content of these emails, it's really, really just awful, horrific stuff that, yeah, I will not be repeating here. But they they repeatedly referred to women as the C word. They also used the N word a couple times. They called an opposing counsel an ethnic slur, and they referred to a female judge by essentially a part of her anatomy. And in response to an employee's question about overtime in one instance, Barber said, kill her. They repeatedly commented on women's bodies. They used homophobic slurs, and they made extremely offensive and racist comments in the wake of George Floyd's murder. The New York Post actually broke this story on Saturday, and their coverage includes screenshots of the emails in case anyone wants to see them for themselves. But, you know, I'm not advocating for it. It's uh, not fun stuff to read. Yeah, I mean, this sounds, you know, we've joked a little bit about how quickly this firm came and uh, they left, but this is the serious part. There's a lot of bad stuff in here. You did say that they quickly resigned after this all came to light. So tell me more about what's happened in the aftermath. Right, yeah. So they've officially stepped down, but I'm sure they will still be dealing with this fallout for quite some time. Louis Brisbois actually said it is still investigating their behavior. It's still going through correspondences and interviewing attorneys that worked with them. Um, However, the management committee did know that no disciplinary action will be taken because the lawyers are no longer with the firm. And Barber and Ronan have apologized for what they called thoughtless, hurtful, and inappropriate words. Here's a statement from them. The last 72 hours have been the most difficult of our lives, as we have had to acknowledge and reckon with these emails. They are not in any way reflections of the contents of our hearts or our true values. As for the fate of the new firm, The remaining attorneys there have created yet another new firm, and this time it is called Doherty Lorden. That firm is led by Melissa Doherty and Joe Lorden, who said their new firm is minority-owned and 60% of the attorneys are women. So, I mean, good luck to that new firm in the wake (laughs) of this scandal. It's a really tough way to start out, but um, hoping that goes better for them and, and that we can kind of close the books on these other two gentlemen. Absolutely. 
Haley, I'm not going to turn us to a lighter subject, unfortunately. I have another pretty intense one to talk about today, and that's an update on a fight over a Florida ban on medical care for transgender adolescents. A federal judge this week blocked enforcement of the ban for three families, finding that preventing parents from making informed decisions on their children's medical treatment and receiving doctor-recommended health care is likely unconstitutional. It's a small win for them in the bigger fight, but it's pretty notable, and I wanted to talk about it today because of how strongly worded this ruling was. Yeah, so there's been so much state-level policy and lawmaking around transgender issues all across the country. Um, But what is the one that we're talking about here? This is about rules adopted by the Florida Boards of Medicine and Osteopathic Medicine that blocked treatment for gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the condition listed in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And it's the clinical diagnosis for distress that arises when a transgender person cannot live consistently with their gender identity. Last year, the Florida Surgeon General directed the state's medical boards to establish a standard of care for gender dysphoria treatment. And the state health department petitioned the boards to adopt a ban on that kind of treatment for anyone under the age of 18. Ultimately, two Florida medical boards instituted rules that did, in fact, ban treatments such as sex reassignment surgeries and puberty blockers for anyone who was an adolescent, so under 18. That, of course, led us to court. Several parents of transgender children sued the medical boards, the Florida Surgeon General, the Florida Attorneys General, and 20 state attorneys. Three of the seven parents that challenged the ban additionally sought the injunction that we're talking about today because they say they needed to access care for their transgender children while the overall legal challenge continues, specifically because those three families had doctors that said they needed puberty blockers soon and without delay. Okay, well, let's turn to the merits of the suit here. What are the actual claims we're talking about? Yeah, I want to go down sort of each side's main arguments. The parents here say the treatment bans ignore established medical consensus and that the treatments are necessary, safe, and effective. They also argue that the rules conflict with parental rights and they violate due process rights. As an example of the kinds of things that are in this lawsuit, one plaintiff said her 10-year-old transgender daughter had expressed femininity as a toddler and years later became concerned about being seen as a boy and was taken to a psychologist who diagnosed her with gender dysphoria. The child was then, under the treatment of doctors, prescribed puberty-blocking medication, which her mother says improved her overall well-being and also her performance in school. So lots of stories like that included in this lawsuit. I'm I'm curious what the state officials have to say about all of that, because, you know, obviously they disagree, but I want to know what exactly they argue. Yeah, you know, this is something that I think all of our listeners will will be pretty familiar with because there's such discourse going on in America right now about how to handle transgender issues writ large and then very specifically what to do with uh, minors. So the Florida official said parents aren't entitled to this, specifically to this preliminary injunction because gender dysphoria treatment in minors is experimental and comes with what they call potentially negative and permanent health consequences. The defendants cited doctors who said more research is needed to justify these puberty blockers and that given the changes occurring in the brain development during and after puberty, that this is just not tested enough or known enough to see as a safe form of treatment. So that's their argument. 
All right. Well, let's turn now to what you have described as a strongly worded ruling. I'm very intrigued as to what this means. Okay, so the judge here was very clear in issuing a preliminary injunction that blocks enforcement of the ban. He said gender identity is a deeply felt internal sense of being male or female, and he rejected a bunch of the characterizations made by the Florida officials. I want to read a couple of quotes, honestly, because they're just impactful here. So one of them, the judge said this, gender identity is real. The record makes this clear. The medical defendants, speaking through their attorneys, have admitted it. At least one defense expert also has admitted it. The judge then went on to write this. There are those who believe that cisgender individuals properly adhere to their natal sex and that transgender individuals have inappropriately chosen a contrary gender identity, male or female, just as one might choose whether to read Shakespeare or Grisham. Many people with this view tend to disapprove of all things transgender and so oppose medical care that supports a person's transgender existence. So pretty stark there, right? And then there's also this zinger. I mean, there's, there's a lot of these. I've just picked a few, but there's also this. The statute and the rules were an exercise in politics, not good medicine. Ooh. So pulling no punches here. It, it, this is essentially why I wanted to talk about this, because you've really got a judge who's saying pretty plainly that this all seems bunk to the judge. I know we're at an early stage and it only impacts a few families, but it's, it's pretty bold, I would say. The judge ruled that the parents are likely to succeed on their claims and that they have obtained the appropriate medical care for their children and that qualified professionals have properly evaluated these children and um, their needs. And it's all well within established standards of care. Well, you were correct to characterize that ruling as strongly worded. If anything, that was an understatement. I like to undersell before we get to yeah. the, the real <laughs> zingers from these opinions. What should we be looking for next in this case? And I guess with this Florida law. Yeah. So this is, as I've said a couple of times, just a preliminary injunction and it's limited in scope to only some of these families. So a lot of litigation to come. We will definitely be tracking this one. But I did also want to point out one other little wrinkle. The parents in this case say that this order also impacts parts of Florida Senate Bill 254, which prohibits gender-affirming care for minors and was signed into law by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis last month. So that is also, I would presume, going to get sucked into some of this litigation because there is some debate about what it applies to. And so I think we're seeing just the beginning of a long fight here. But um, one worth following. And this is also exemplary of fights going on in other states. So we've got a new sort of bucket of litigation to watch around transgender issues. For our main segment today, Alex, I know you have something big to talk about. And as is well documented on the Pro Se podcast, I'm not a sports girl, but I know a good dramatic story when I hear one. And nothing has been more dramatic than the world of golf this week. Yeah. And that's, uh, first of all, an amazing get for Pro Se to get me on as the guest this week. This we worked is, I mean, really hard. And um, your rider was very difficult. Yeah, but uh, I'm glad to be here. Glad to be talking through this. It is a truly wild story, which is probably a descriptor I and the rest of the media use too much, but I really think it applies here. As you've probably heard by now, this week brought 
the stunning news that the PGA Tour, the flagship golf promoter in the world, has agreed to merge, join forces with its Saudi-backed rival Live Golf with an agreement that will look to squash the contentious litigation that had basically swallowed up the entire golfing industry. After about a year of sniping in the courts over antitrust and contract breach claims that looked like was really going to go for the long haul, the two competitors uh, are now just all smiles, and they are excited about doing this new joint venture, this new golfing league, golfing operation. But it's important to note that the deal is far from a sure bet. As many in the media have noted, the Justice Department and other regulators appear poised to take a very hard look at this arrangement and the exact shape that it takes. There will be antitrust concerns, possibly national security concerns that will have to be monitored. And all of this uh, is happening while the PGA Tour is dealing with quite a bit of blowback of uh, so-called sports washing as it cozies up with the Saudi government, which has been widely criticized for its human rights record. It was a bombshell moment on Tuesday that sent me and the rest of my team and others in the newsroom uh, scampering to our computers. And I think we did a really nice job. I'm going to shout out the work of some of my colleagues here, but there's lots to get into. It is kind of amazing how quickly this turned into a totally different kind of story than what we've covered before, we've talked about this on Pro Se when, when some litigation was arising over this rivalry, and now we've turned on a dime. So I want to get to all of it, but maybe we should start so that people like me, who are maybe not big golf fans, understand what the rivalry was to begin with. The PGA Tour has been the dominant force in professional golf for decades now, and that dominance was directly challenged two years ago with the founding of Live Golf, which was bankrolled, crucially, by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. That is the sovereign wealth fund of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It is a foreign government entity directly funding a competing sports league. And the tour offered players very lucrative upfront payments, some in, some in the nine figures, just to show up and play at their events. This is beyond money that you win for placing highly in a tournament. These are just payments that were made to players simply for being there. And they had some other benefits and a unique structure that the PGA didn't, and that was enticing to a lot of a lot of professional golfers who signed up to be live golfers. And in response, the PGA banned any golfers who had aligned themselves with live from participating in its own events. Now, they did this on paper, citing rules about exclusivity and unauthorized tournaments. This was seen largely as a rebuke of the Saudi government's human rights record. And the PGA commissioner himself harped on those players for taking blood money. And the commissioner invoked Saudi Arabia's role in the 9-11 terrorist attacks um, as basically calling into question the morals of these players who decided to jump ship and join with Liv. And the tour's ban on these players, that prompted an antitrust lawsuit from the golfers and eventually Live itself that said the PGA was basically operating a stranglehold on the market for professional golf competitions. And the PGA, to make it even more heated, they countersued. They basically said that Live committed tortious interference by inducing players to breach their contracts with the PGA Tour. And as you said, Amber, we have talked about this before. To break down these sort of allegations in full, I would uh, refer everyone to episode 261 from August of last year. We go in depth there. But those are the basics of how this all came to be. 
So that was back in August, and we've had some time for that litigation to sort of roll along. What was the shape of it before this deal was announced? It was going extremely slow, even by the standards of mighty corporate litigators. The PGA Tour and Liv couldn't even be cordial. They couldn't really agree on a discovery schedule. They were already appealing at the Ninth Circuit about whether the Saudi government could be subpoenaed. And subpoenas, you know, are like, that's like step one of the discovery process of trying, of of what's going to already be a long lawsuit. There were disagreements about whether the litigation could continue while that appeal was going on. And at one point during a status conference, the judge who was presiding over the case said, matter of factly, this case is going to be litigated for 10 years and you guys need to figure out And she was just throwing off a number off the top of her head, but she clearly knew that they were digging in for the long haul. But then, basically, out of nowhere, as I said, Liv and the PGA Tour announced that they would be merging. We'll get back to whether it's actually a merger in a second, but uh, joining forces along with the European Tour to create an entirely new golf organization, one that brings the Saudi Wealth Fund to the table as a primary partner and primary sponsor of golf in America. Now, there weren't a lot of details on the specifics of of what shape this would take. So we are going to be keeping a very close eye on exactly what this new entity looks like, because it's going to be very important, as you might imagine, for the next steps here. This is really, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, you're the sports person here, but it's weird for sports groups to merge in this way. I mean, I can't remember the last time something like this happened. So feels like a big deal, even if there hadn't been this backdrop of all the litigation and it being Saudi Arabia and all of the baggage that goes along with that. It just, it it feels big regardless and something that I think the government would take a close look at for a variety of reasons, including those others. Yeah, there is some precedent here, but never anything so, that was so contentious and then so quickly not contentious. The, The NBA and the ABA merged several decades ago. Same deal for the NFL and the AFL. But those competitor leagues were always kind of announced and rolled out with the idea that they might eventually be rolled in to to, to the existing sort of stalwart leagues, whereas Liv was was squarely launched as a promotion to compete directly with the PGA Tour. Um, But there are many, many rivers to cross here before they just hold hands and skip through the field uh, of or skip down the fairway, I suppose, (laughs) to keep my keep my golf metaphors uh, in line. That's a good one. I mean, what's what's the antitrust angle? Because it seems pretty obvious that, you know, antitrust regulators don't love when something that's supposed to be competitive is suddenly not as competitive. So what's going on there? Yeah, I wanted to shout out specifically here, our own Brian Koenig did some great reporting on the challenges that lie ahead for these partners. Now, you have to remember, this began as an antitrust suit, you know, and if Liv is arguing there that the PGA is this monopolistic force, and then, you know, less than a year later, joins with them to create a new venture for professional golf, it would seem to only further entrench that power, if it's true that they were a monopolist, you know, force to begin with. One attorney that Brian spoke to, this is a a man named Joshua Shapiro of Evershed Sutherland. He noted that the DOJ has, when it challenges deals like this in the past, They have looked directly at allegations made by the parties in court when those parties later decide to, you know, make nice and buddy up. Here was the quote. Uh, This is from uh, Shapiro. 
The parties have been embroiled in antitrust litigation over the past year and will have to contend with the allegations they've made against each other as they now seek to convince regulators that the deal is pro-competitive. So that seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, I mean, I really love this as a as a point that we should be watching as this moves forward because it's it's a real like, yeah, um, we want to merge now. So like, look over there. Like, it's just very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you spend the better part of a year talking about how uncompetitive this is and then you just join forces. The other thing, which I hinted at at the top of the segment, is the issue of terminology. The PGA Tour was bugging me and Brian and I assume every other reporter that was writing about this on Tuesday and said, uh, this isn't a merger. Don't call it a merger. Uh, it's a partnership between two entities that creates a new golfing organization. Now, Oh, boy. That Alex, is a- <laughs> I got to stop now just to say this. Like, I think it was just last week on the show or maybe the week before, I referred to how attorneys can be called word merchants. And we all kind of laughed about me liking that terminology from, new- from a New York Times article. But even for us word merchant journalists, okay, what's the difference between a merger and a partnership that creates a new entity? Yeah, I mean, we we definitely won't don't don't want to get bogged down into semantics right now. Lord knows they may we we may have many court filings on that in our future. But the point is is that that distinction may not matter. The DOJ just last month was successful in challenging a very similar arrangement between American Airlines and JetBlue. We also talked about that on the show and that they basically convinced that judge to say, "All right, call it what you want. We are treating this as a merger for legal purposes." And it was able to win uh, in court to block that that arrangement from from taking full effect. Now, beyond the antitrust concerns, there is also the matter of a foreign government body taking a huge ownership stake in a U.S. business operation. And that may invite scrutiny from the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which is getting a lot of run on Pro Se and elsewhere. (laughs) It sure is. That has specifically been um, in the news of late regarding the reviews of national security implications of TikTok's operations. And again, this is a this is a government committee that assesses whether foreign ownership presents a security concern. And considering all of the alarms that have been raised about the geopolitical influence of Saudi Arabia, if CFIUS does decide to kick the tires here, they really might be getting their hands dirty. So that's another angle to keep our eyes on as we as we surge forward. I mean, also talk about another thing that could really delay what's going on here. CFIUS reviews are not known to be quick. So that's that's an interesting wrinkle too. Yeah, the TikTok one has been going on for two years. Now, TikTok is operating and maybe this, this new golf entity could operate while the review happens and then could be unwound, but that's conjecture at this point. But does, yes, um, if they get into it, it's not going to be a quick fix. Well, I mean, what you've laid out for me already, and this is why I said right in the beginning, I don't um, always follow the sports parts, but I follow the drama. And you've laid out so much drama already. But what are you going to be watching next? Like, what should I know as the lay person in this story to keep uh, watching or any big takeaways we already have? Yeah, I mean, the thing to keep watching for, as, as we've said, is just whether any government, either w- whether it's the DOJ or another regulator, really tries to muscle up. I was talking to, to Brian Koenig before we hopped on here, and the attorneys he was talking to seems seem to think that it's pretty much a done deal, that some kind of complaint will be filed. So definitely keep your eyes peeled for that. There's a few other interesting threads here, and one is that if the litigation between the PGA Tour and Liv really is done for good, and 
we're not close to being able to say that definitively yet because of all the contingencies that we've already mentioned here. But one kind of lingering issue that that will remain unresolved if the litigation goes away is that we're not going to get to hear the Ninth Circuit weigh in on whether the Saudi Wealth Fund could have been served with a subpoena or even be sued at all in this context. That, again, they were, that issue is before the Ninth Circuit right now. And that's something that people who care about the reach of foreign sovereign immunity laws, we're taking an active interest in. That's an open question. The basic rule of those laws is that a foreign government can't be sued in the U.S. without its consent. There are crucial exceptions, which is if they're conducting commercial activity within the United States. And there were questions about whether merely providing financial backing for LIV was enough to draw the Saudi wealth fund into the U.S. nexus that remains open if, and, and, and may be unresolved if this litigation goes away. As for like the, some of the bigger picture narratives, uh, the, our senior sports reporter, David Steele, my colleague, did a really great job you know, pulling together kind of the big narrative threads here. And the reason that this was such a shock is that most experts agreed that the PGA Tour had the upper hand in the legal dispute. At a basic level, Liv was on very shaky antitrust grounds because of its very existence. Like it's a very well-funded, lucrative league that is paying out gobs of money to these players. And it made for an awkward set of, you know, briefings where they then had to say like, oh, we're actually being nudged out of the market and being subject to like anti-competitive rules. So that was a very strange argument. And it was very surprising that the PGA would just abandon that likely because they weren't really down with a decade's worth of litigation on their hand, even if they thought that they might be able to win. So now we're sitting here, both sides are able to claim a measure of victory but the PGA has really been taking it on the chin. Uh, as, as David reported, the, the deal has been just pilloried by a number of golfers who stuck around with, with the PGA Tour, basically on moral grounds. And now the guys who left uh, are just going to come back into the fold with, we don't know if there any, any penalties will be assessed or anything like that. They even earned a, uh, the deal even earned a rebuke from the families of 9-11 victims. I mentioned before that that had come up when the Saudi league got underway. And obviously that's a uh, extremely emotionally sensitive set of stakeholders there who are not pleased with this. So, you know, there's a pretty clear win here for Liv and its funders who have been trying to get a seat at the table in the Western sports world as a, as a real like financial power player. But the win for the PGA tour comes in the shape of not having to litigate anymore. And that's, if you want to look at it a certain way, they, they don't have to worry about that. But it's coming at a pretty steep cost to its reputation uh, among, uh, among golf fans. Alex, as my main source of sports knowledge, I really appreciate you breaking this one down for me. Now I think I can actively talk about this with all of my friends who are abuzz about this news. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Amber. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Amber, I'm told you have something that has to do with pants for us today. Look, Haley, we've had a heavy show. You know, we've talked about Saudi Arabia. We've talked about transgender care. We've talked about 
some pretty terrible things said in emails uh, from some attorneys. So nothing light. Just can't let us go out like that. Um, I don't have a transition here. I do have a headline. (laughs) Here's the headline. Attorney indicted over scheme to steal 250,000 pairs of pants. Okay. (laughs) I have so many questions. Sure. 250,000. A lot of questions. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Why would someone? Yeah. Why would someone want to steal pants? Why do we need thousands, hundreds of thousands of them? When you're plotting your thefts, you don't think massive quantities of pants. You're not thinking big enough. So (laughs) here's what's going on. Uh, A suspended attorney and two brothers have been charged in New York court with scheming to assume the identity of a company that had worked with a lawyer. And as part of assuming that identity, to steal over 250,000 pairs of pants valued at more than $2 million. Wow. The attorney is a man named Joseph Sanchez. He teamed up with a pair of brothers, as I said a moment ago. And I would like to quote our own story here that they were, quote, plotting to purloin the pants. Love it. Beautiful. Like, that alliteration really got me. I, I just, hats off. Um, so... To do that, they were impersonating a Manhattan-based company that does exist called Mod Society, and that's an importer. So Sanchez had provided them with legal services, knew about this company, and I guess devised this scheme on the back of that work. Okay. Well, after my initial question of why, my next question is obviously, what kind of pants are we talking about here? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, I was curious about that myself, and the answer is joggers and jeans. So, you know, popular pants. Okay. Um, So I guess I don't know what type I was expecting, but... (laughs) I don't, I mean, I I just wanted to know. I needed to know, are these dress pants? Are these khakis? Chinos? What do we got going on? Nope. Joggers, jeans, casual. I guess those are probably the moneymakers. I would imagine. Everyone has a pair of jeans. Mm Mm-hmm. Joggers are very uh, fashion forward these days. Especially post-pandemic. Comfy pants. I'm all soft pants in my life. So, okay. Sanchez and the brothers he schemed with reached out to wholesalers who thought they were providing the pants on credit to Mod Society, the real company. They bought the domain name for Mod Society, unbeknownst to the actual company. Then they emailed these wholesalers purchase orders pretending to be the president of the company. As the scheme continued, they also made up other executives, too, and made up emails for them and were reaching out to various manufacturers to get shipments of pants on credit. Clothing manufacturers did, in fact, make and ship the clothing that was ordered. They shipped it to a warehouse in California. The clothes were then sold by these schemers to other wholesale businesses, earning them about $750,000. So... The three men were charged with conspiracy, identity theft, forgery, criminal possession of forged instruments, and the brothers also got additional charges around falsifying business records. So a lot of charges for a pants scheme. Yeah. I'm not advocating for theft, but I am impressed. Like, this is a... Well, this is a unique way to come by $750,000, you know? I mostly brought this story, uh, well, as a palate cleanser, for one. It's funny. But also, so I could say, plotting to purloin the pants. Right, right. But I do have one final question for you. You know, that's pretty much the tale of this. It's an indictment. We'll see what happens. My final question for you, though, is if you had to run a scheme selling an item of clothing wholesale, what type of clothing would you select? Would it be pants? I don't think so. I think it would be underwear because everyone needs it. 
Sure, sure. I want to. I want something that it's like it doesn't matter. Yeah, you, you know the economy. It. Everybody's got to have it. Even when the economy's mm-hmm. down, people are out thinking. there buying underwear. You've got to do it. I would go shoes. I'm an avowed shoe lover. Oh, I mean, nice. As I yeah. record right now, I'm. I record from my closet. I think the listeners all know that by now. I've been doing this since the pandemic started. And behind me, Haley can see my wall of shoes. I'm a shoe. There lady. are a lot of shoes. I think if there's any schemes coming, it is footwear related. Shoes are very can be very um, expensive as well. Like people sure, are willing to good. shell out. So uh-huh. you could get a lot out of that. Well, you know, if this podcasting and legal news doesn't work out, <laughs> shoe thievery. I, I shouldn't say this on the air. And Alex yeah, we, always we probably tells us, this is where we need him on the show. He always says, "Don't say what your schemes are going to be on the air." So forget <laughs> it. Forget it. I don't love shoes. None of this. Yeah, none of this has been discussed. Erase this from everyone's <laughs> memories, please. All right. I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up before I incriminate myself with any future bad actions that I'm plotting. Uh, but thank you a lot for being with me today, Haley. Thank you. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our contributing reporters this week. David Minsky, Christine DeRosa, David Steele, Shumei Dong, and Brian Koenig. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Keller Mercano. If you like Pro Se, it would really help us out and help other people find our show if you leave us five stars and a written review. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, that's when you check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.